All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for a day to gather together as our beloved family likes to do, for making this a day to treasure, a day to behold as something given by your grace, motivated by your love of giving. We are so undeserving, Father, yet you have made a way clear to us through your precious Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As your word states, but you demonstrated your own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we pray for your continued favor, even though we have no place to demand it, other than through the merits of Jesus himself. Even so, Father, we come boldly to the throne of grace, knowing that your will is for all to be saved and come to the knowledge of you. We do ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is a continuation, uh, part 17 of the so-called difficult passages and this sort of subcategory of that major theme is grace and works. We spent the vast majority of our time, obviously, on the topic of grace. And I'm just going to warn you before we even get started this morning, if you haven't been keeping up with the lessons, if you haven't been keeping up with the lessons, then this morning's lesson is going to likely be confusing at times. I have to borrow from things that the Spirit's been teaching us as a congregation. Uh, I have to grab a collective, if you would, of thoughts and concepts and pull them together, almost like, you know, you lace a shoe up and you, you pull it tight. Well, there's times in our lessons that we have to pull the lessons tight. But if you've r missed some of the ringlets, I mean, do you understand? And that's, I don't know, I mean, if you're new, I see some new faces here this morning. Don't fret, please. Uh, just hang in there. Just trust me that everyone starts this way. Coming to a church like this one can be daunting uh, if you've never been to one like this in the past that teaches um, truth the way we teach it, the unadulterated, unapologetic Word of God. Uh, just hang in there if you're new. However, if you're a member of this congregation and you haven't been keeping up, then you need to answer to God. I'm really, I was saying this to my mom and DJ before class, I'm, you know, I'm tired of being your dad in, in, in the loose sense of the word. You know what I mean? I'm not your, I'm not your dad. I'm a 47-year-old man doing my job. I'm not your pops. My job is not to whip you every time you come to Sunday class and say the same stinking things every time. Why are you not doing this? Why are you not doing that? Why are you not doing this? Why are you not doing that? Many of you are older than me. I mean, even Sean knows what I'm talking about, and he's the youngest one sitting here. I don't mind doing it once in a while, but it gets old. So all I can say to you is that you need to answer to God. If you're not keeping up with the lessons, that's between you and the Lord at this juncture. I'm going to keep pressing on. And if you fall behind, it's your own fault. Okay, that's all I'm going to say on that. Thursday began with one of those um, subtleties, let's call it, that take a while to sink in. 
and the misnomer about subtleties is that people often think of them as small. They say, oh, it's just a little, you know, thing. When more often than not, especially regarding spiritual matters, those subtleties are cause for many errors that actually haunt people for most of their lives in very big ways. That's what happens. So these little subtleties, although they may seem sort of like, oh, it's just Pastor Ed, you know, he's playing theologian again. He's, you know, he's splitting hairs and it's, you know, whatever. You know, yeah, so I didn't catch this lesson, I didn't catch that lesson. I'll just give up on it. I'll, I'll catch the next wave of whatever the Spirit happens to be saying. But these are the same people who are miserable. They're the same people I hear from. I don't know why this. I don't know why that. I'm miserable. I can't get my priorities straight. I can't do that. I can't seem this. I can't seem that. Again, there's the same people that I just addressed. The same ones who just skip out on God's grace. And what happens is over time, that becomes big. Satan doesn't need a large crack. He only needs a crack. You know? A serpent doesn't need a whole lot of space to slither in. Just a small space. And most of you have gaping holes that, you know, even, uh, I don't know, I don't want to get crazy, but, what was, hey, Sean, what was the name of that snake yesterday? Super, what was it called? Titanoboa. Yeah, Titanoboa. Even Titanoboa could get through there. That's so-called some prehistoric version of, you know, some Goliath snake that was, you know, back in the dinosaur age, Titanoboa. Most of you have that. <laughs> it isn't until a pulpit like this one comes along and opens your eyes to the truth in this world. That's all I'm doing. That's all I'm doing. I don't want to be a hero. I don't want to be a pappy. I don't want to be anything but a tour guide. I want to do my job. I'm a shepherd. I've been ordained to do this job. I do it with love. I do it whatever, however he wants me to do it. So it isn't until a pulpit like this one comes along and opens your eyes to the truth in this world, to the lies and the deception and the complacency even that exists in churches today. With that said, Thursday's message began with our approaching the essence of God very carefully because Behind all this talk about sovereignty, behind all this talk about salvation proper, what we are actually saved from, and it's not hell, that's a destination. With all this talk about the sovereignty of God, we have to address the very essence of God because we can't think of one of His attributes, if you would, in a vacuum. So let's think of it this way, and this is that subtlety that we begin with on Thursday, the essence of God. When we think of God, we must think of His activities and His will as absolutely the same. We must also recognize that all of His attributes function synchronously at all times. Therefore, we should avoid using words like, you know, God can't or God must do this or that in favor of God won't or He desires to do this or that, respectively. And that changes our perspective. 
quite a bit because instead of putting God on a treadmill, well, he can't do that or he must do this, so says who, man? Maybe he won't do it and he desires to do. That's more appropriate because whatever he wills to do, guess what? He does. So if he does something, guess what? It's not because he can't or he must. It's because he wants to. That's the point. So we don't have the sort of opportunity, because, you know, the flesh is opportunistic. We don't have the opportunity to put God on some treadmill. Well, he can't do that. By his own integrity, he can't do that. Well, his integrity is in perfect synchronicity with his love and his grace and his judgment, etc., and his sovereignty. He does these things because he wills to do them. He's never done anything he doesn't want to do. And so we need to stop putting God on a treadmill. If that slipped away, let me give you a second angle, if that still doesn't make total sense. If we observe God through a finite lens, which is mankind's, we often inadvertently put him into a struggle with himself. However, if we seek his perspective, we observe that it's by the very will of God that things happen. God never contends with himself. Do you understand? He never contends with himself. And then a third angle I gave you on Thursday. To say that God's grace somehow overrides his justice or vice versa is to presuppose that one of his attributes has tension with another. And this is never true. Is God love? You bet. Is he sovereign? You bet. Does he judge? You bet. Does he have justice? Does he have integrity? You bet. But these things never have tension with one another. You have to understand that. Man is the one with such internal struggles. Just read Romans 7 to figure that out. We mustn't then ascribe such things to God. If we look through our lens, we say, well, egocentrism, he must be like us. But that's not true. He's God. We're the ones with the struggles, not God. We know from the Holy Scripture that the human flesh, the so-called sin nature, makes it difficult for us to set aside that lens, though. That's the problem. We like to approach things from our own center point, if you would, from our own point of view. Because it's easier that way, isn't it? It's hard to, to even live for others. Never mind, just forget about God for a moment. This is one of the reasons why we don't like to live for others, because we would actually have to, you know, uh, sympathize with others. We would actually have to change our perspective for a moment, God forbid, for a moment and see things through someone else's eyes. Maybe they're, they're suffering a certain way, in a way that you can't even fathom it unless you really do turn the corner and try to see things through their lens. What about God? So it's difficult, though, to set aside our own fleshly lenses. And in all fairness to ourselves, that makes total sense since we are having to put aside a lens that we viewed the world through exclusively, think about it, until we were given another one at salvation, another even faculty. The only one we could see through until we were saved, if you're saved, was that lens. That, my friends, is the essence of man. We are born egocentric. Egocentrism 
precludes its host from being objective about God. An egocentric person is an arrogant person who demands the world be known, quote-unquote, from their perspective. Well, this is the way I see it, so there it is. It gets into that philosophical realm of, you know, existentialism and this whole, well, this is my experience of life, and so it is. And everybody else is wrong. So egocentrism precludes us from being objective about God. An egocentric person is an arrogant person who demands the world be, quote, known from their perspective. And I was reflecting on this with you all on Thursday evening. All we have to think about to get our perspective straight, because this is what the Spirit's trying to do, is just, once again, use this vessel to get you in the right perspective. All we have to think about to get our perspective straight on this is to consider babies. Now everybody's like, oh, oh, don't pick on the babies. All right. Well, here's what I know about babies. All infants are egocentric. They are born fleshly. They demand that the rest of the world exists to serve them. <laughs> they expect that everyone sees things the way they do, that they are the center of the universe. And then guess what happens? Infants grow up. And for a lot of people, they're like adult-sized infants, like baby Huey. Remember him? They're a bunch of baby Hueys walking around. They're still completely egocentric. Infants grow up. Now, I'm going to get wax philosophical here for a moment, but if, you, if I lose you for a moment, just hang in there. I was reflecting on this as I was preparing my notes. Life exists. Duh. But I need you to think about it. Think almost philosophically. Life exists. So just consider that for a moment. What I mean to say is that life is. It's all around us. It's in us. If we articulate this more biblically, less philosophically, we might say that since God is eternal life, then He is the author of all life. Again, since God is eternal life, then He is the author of all life. Again, life exists. And to be wholly honest about life, we must concede that life pre existed, any one of us. God's eternal life. So, life pre-existed. Anyone sitting here listening to my voice this morning? As Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes 1.9, that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. So your little existential trip in this thing called life has not somehow un uncovered or discovered something under some new stone. Life itself pre-existed you in your egocentric existence. So to put things into perspective for us as individuals, since we are now teetering on the precipice of philosophy, up here on the board, your perspective, since life pre-exists you, 
your personal perspective on it cannot possibly be the source of wisdom. We're talking about lenses. We're talking about perspective. The wisest people in the world, if you'd like to say it that way, have the most appropriately oriented perspectives. That's what makes them wise. You can have all the knowledge in the world. As Satan proved in Matthew 4, you can even have scripture memorized, but you can misapply it. Why? Because your perspective's all messed up. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but if your perspective is wrong, you have no wisdom. Does that make sense? And you're all born dumb. But here's the thing. You think you have wisdom. That's what we call the sophomore, right? The wise moron. Some of you have even collected some knowledge over the years, even some from this. And you've become wise moron because you think you're wise. But you're actually dumb because you're still viewing the lens from your limited, finite perspective. And you wonder where all the misery comes from. Back to our point, though. Since life pre-exists you, your personal perspective on it cannot possibly be the source of wisdom. True wisdom is from above, given to us through the Word and the Spirit. Stubborn egocentrism frustrates our receiving such things. In other words, if you're unwilling... Even right now, I know some of you are like, will you please move on, Baldy? Will you just move on? What are you doing? You sound like some college professor at Harvard, waxing philosophical. Well, that's just you being arrogant again. Stubborn egocentrism frustrates our receiving such things. In other words, if you're unwilling to actually, geez, just for a moment, change your perspective, maybe see something, isn't that what you want? Honestly? You go to a good friend, man, I'm having the worst day. What if they say, I'm not, you're an idiot. (laughs) The first thing they're going to say if they're a good friend is, well, what's going on in your life? Maybe I can adjust to see things through your lens. Maybe I can appreciate what you're going through. But if no one ever did that, no one ever took the time to actually swing away from their own egocentric viewpoint of the world, eh, how can we be there for each other ever? You see, stubborn egocentrism frustrates our receiving even the wisdom from God. So what the Spirit is trying to do is twofold, and that's a pattern that is quite common to us. I mean, think of, you know, repent from this and receive faith in this. He's saying that we need to drop our own perspectives and pick up God's. For example... We humans contend with ourselves all the time. That is Romans 7. But God doesn't. That's how we started. If we're going to understand the essence of God, we have to first understand it. He's never at war with himself. He doesn't have those little conversations in your head, you know, do it, no, don't do it, do it, no, don't do it, right? That whole thing from the cartoons, right? Nobody, I was the only corrupted child. (laughs) We're the ones with the problems, God doesn't have problems. To God, everything's absolute. He doesn't, he's not even bound by the construct of time. To him, everything is. Boom, you ready? That's it. Right? That's it. That's it. There's no contention. God's not like, hmm, well, you know, Andrea's been a, you know, good girl lately. So even though, you know, she's been this way, I guess I'll change my mind on this thing. What? No. That's not how God is. God doesn't sit there, stay, you know, lose sleep at night like we do. Rolling back and forth. Should I or shouldn't I? She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. (laughs) 
We're the ones with the problems. We humans struggle with grace and justice. We do. We struggle with grace and works. Or we struggle with love and eternal damnation. But God doesn't. This is the point. To God, life itself is obvious. Everything about life is obvious to God. To man, it can be confusing. And it's because of the natural tension that exists in us, even as believers. That's why it's confusing, if it's confusing at all. And it is. I mean, if you just spend one day in life, right? I mean, nothing seems absolute to us other than maybe our salvation if we're saved. But there's always that natural tension. It's nothing for God to say to this in the same breath. Think about this. It's nothing for God to say this. I love you, but I'm going to crush you. There's nothing for God to say that. What do you think he said to his son? Go to Isaiah 53, 2. Isaiah 53, 2. It's nothing for God to say that. I love you, but I'm going to crush you. I love you. I'm going to discipline you. I love you. I'm going I'm to get you some undeserved suffering. I'm going to fill your cup with a cup of suffering. What do you think he said to his son? Isaiah 53, 2. Well, let's see what Scripture has to say about this. Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. This is talking about our Lord and Savior, of course. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. You ready for this? Verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. 
That's the essence of God. God didn't lose sleep over that. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Yeah. By grace, God crushed his only begotten son. By grace, he crushes his own children too. But here's the point the Spirit's really digging into this morning. Only an arrogant person takes issue with the sovereign God of the universe. Up here on the board. The essence of God is offensive to the person averse to all of His grace. They say things like, how can a loving God crush His own Son, or any human being for that matter? This is a person who doesn't understand God or His love. That's a person who can only see through a fleshly lens. Again, the essence of God is offensive to the person averse to all of His grace. They say things like, how can a loving God crush His own Son, or any human being for that matter? This is a person who doesn't understand God or His love. For starters, for more context, We humans cannot understand everything that God chooses to do in our lives. Go to Romans 11.32. Romans 11.32. So now that we're on the subject of understanding the things of God, let's keep things in a healthy scope, shall we? Let's not get too carried away. Let's not suppose we know everything about God. But we know enough... Romans 11:32 For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Oh the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So the lawyer type might then ask, well, based on that, how can anyone know God, quote-unquote, if Romans 11.33 says, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. That's what a lawyer would say. The answer, though, is simple. Faith. Faith. The things we don't know about God, that's where faith comes in. 
You see, a lawyer type is often an arrogant type. And God only gives faith to the humble, for he is opposed to the arrogant. James 4, 6. So you see, faith makes things clear to those who possess it. This is grace that an arrogant person does not have and therefore remains in their frustration regarding the things of God. Again, that was to help out with the point on the board. The essence of God is offensive to the person averse to all of His grace. They say things like, how can a loving God crush His own Son, or any human being for that matter? This is a person who doesn't understand God. It's that simple. They don't understand God. Matter of fact, they're not even interested. Why are they not interested? Because they're arrogant. They're the ones who don't want to see anything through anyone else's lens. They're the infants who grew up egocentric, and they're still egocentric. As the Spirit's been emphasizing from the pulpit up here on the board, man never has the right to put God on trial. If man fails to comprehend why God does the things he does, we ought never contest his sovereign right to do so, or worse, propose that he is in contention with himself the way we are with him. We don't have the right to put God on trial. He's not confused about anything. He doesn't have our limitations. To him, everything's obvious. So we ought not propose that he is in contention with himself the way we are with him. But here's what we do know about him, which requires faith to cling to up here on the board. And I warned you, I warned you, if you didn't have these lessons, the last few especially, inserted in your soul, this morning might be a little confusing. Hebrews 13, 8 through 9a, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. God is immutable means he never changes. Not even his mind. He doesn't have those problems we do. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. James 1.17, Part B, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That's the lens of God. Up here on the board, just to clarify further, if there's no sequence in God's existence, God is omniscient. He's not bound by the construct of time the way man is. To man, everything's sequential. To God, history is this. That's history. That's all of human history. Take out the construct of time and there's no timeline. To God, it's, there it is. So if there's no sequence in God's existence, no time construct, then there's no changing of God's mind. So-called changes of mind in Scripture is from the perspective of, or even for the perspective of man. So, back to where we started this morning. And if again, if some of this seems like I'm waxing philosophical, please know that I am not. I did, told you, I did tell you that you'd have to spend some time pondering this stuff. I did warn you 
about slacking off on the lessons. And by the way, the lessons include everything that I write because those things are always related. So take a moment and step back. When you think about the essence of God, stop being so mechanical. Do not put God on a treadmill. Don't say, He can't do this or He must do that. Think about Him as what He is, a person. Stop being so mechanical. Stop focusing on God Himself instead of His attributes or even His commands as individual bitwise categorical doctrines. Instead of thinking, quote, assembly lines and gears, think of synchronicity and Him being. God is life, and He pre-existed your life. Any wisdom on that topic, you're going to have to get from Him. You're going to have to have a change of perspective from that egocentric one that you were born with to the one that the Spirit's trying to impart to you this morning. Otherwise, you're going to remain in your frustrated existence, wondering why God. How can God do that to a young child? How can God let a young child, a six-month-old, die of cancer or of complications, lung or heart or brain or some other disease? How can a loving God do that? Well, either you have faith or you don't. Either you think there's things that you don't know and understand, or you do think you do understand everything, which makes you God which makes you the sovereign, which when all of a sudden, when you're the sovereign, all of a sudden you, you arrogant little speck, put God on trial. God is the sovereign of the universe, not you. You were just born, what, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago? Bill, 150, right? Thank God for Bill. What's, what's going to be like when, you know, Bill goes home to be with the Lord? Lois. <laughs> Everybody's like, I'm not the oldest. <laughs> uh, I don't even know where I was. Something about assembly lines and gears. Just stop being so mechanical. Seriously, stop putting God on a treadmill. Stop saying this or that. And st- oh, I know what it was. Stop being the sovereign and then putting God on trial. You don't have a right to put God on trial just because you've witnessed something in your existence. Big deal. Now, applying this, now that he's got your attention, applying this to our current subject of grace and works. That is our subject, after all. Up here on the board, this perspective he's trying to give us regarding grace, and we're kind of closing out grace as a topic. I don't know if you realize that. God's grace is what's best for you, not to you, not from your perspective. It's what's best for you, not to you, not what you think, at least not always. When perceived as for you, you understand that His will is done. And His will is perfect. And you read Romans like 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love God. However, when we perceive as to you, you understand falsely that your will be done. In other words, (laughs) that the difference is 
when you realize that grace is for you, you realize that His grace accommodates His perfect sovereign will. When you think it's to you, what you think grace should be, all of a sudden it goes from that to accommodating you. And that would mean your will is done. In other words, God somehow, we were able to drag God out of heaven and say, this is my will, and if you love me, if you really love me, you'll do this thing for me. You know like when we manipulate people, other people? If you really loved me, you'd do this terrible thing for me. God's not going to do that. We don't get to drag God out of heaven and say, well, this is my will, and if you want me to believe in this so-called grace thing of yours, then do this thing for me, and I'll believe you. What the? That's not how grace works. God's immutable. More practically stated and applied, I gave you this on Thursday, a broken clock. Even a broken clock is correct twice a day. A person can sometimes be correct, but for the wrong reason. Just because your will happens to align with God's will doesn't mean you are righteous. Well, I'd like to see that happen too. God would like to see it happen, but for different reasons. God would love for you to go out and evangelize someone today. But if you do it for the sake of legalism or for blowing your trumpet, I evangelized three people today. I'm going to write it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm going to take a picture, put it on Instagram. This is me, in case you were wondering. This is me evangelizing people. Get the selfie poll. Like an idiot, right? This is not the right motivation. Does God want us to evangelize people? It says it in Scripture. But you've got to have the right motivation. You see? Well, every once in a while you might evangelize someone, but the clock is broken. And so it's correct. Twice a day. Once in a while. But that doesn't mean it's working. That's the whole point. A broken clock up here in the board... A broken clock is analogous to a person whose perspective is dominated by their own self-will. Let me ask you a question right now. <clears throat> okay, so God the Holy Spirit says to me unequivocally, move Sunday service to Saturday mornings. Or take Sunday service and break it in two parts. One at 8 in the morning on Sunday and one at 8 at night on Sunday. What would you say? How many would show up for both? Has anything changed fundamentally in terms of the, the content? No. But all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the broken clock doesn't strike 12 at the same time anymore as God does. But wait a minute. Uh, wait a minute. No, 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 no. You can't do that. My will is that it's on Sunday mornings because, you see, the Patriots play in the afternoon. It's my will that church happens at this time because I got my, my, uh, my unbeliever family coming over this afternoon. They come over on Sundays. We have turkey dinner every Sunday, and, you know, I, I get to go spend time in the world again. And, and, and if, you, if you change this, oh, well, whose will is, is in place there? Those are the kind of things you have to think about. Seriously. 
Why don't you read and why don't you come into class? You know why? Because you're a broken clock. Because those times don't jive with your life. But yet we just learned that life itself pre-existed your puny existence. And that God's will is perfect. And if he says, hey, listen, North Christian Church, Tuesdays, Wednesday every other, almost three times if you, anyways, Thursdays, 7.30, Sunday, 10 a.m., blogs, books. And people just say, eh, that's a broken clock. Because the only time the clock strikes well is when you want it to strike well. When things, you know, when you can fit God into your schedule. Speaking of clocks. But you don't understand, Baldy. I have work. Oh, I didn't realize that I signed the line when you took the job. I didn't realize that. Oh, I'm sorry. God must be an idiot. He must have forgot that you had work that day. He must have forgot that. He must have forgot that he gave you eyes and a brain to read and way more than 10 minutes to read a blog on a Saturday. God's an idiot, right? Isn't that what you're saying? Isn't that what we all say? Isn't that what a broken clock says? Tough, right? Yeah, what's the problem? Egocentric infants grow up. But I want it to be my way. As the Spirit's been teaching us for a very long time now, perspective is everything up here on the board. And they are wholly different perspectives. We're not talking about works in the sense of just do this thing and God's satisfied. No, he's talking about, I want you to do these things, but I want your perspective to be right on them. A righteous person seeks to reconcile to God's perfect will. You know, your will be done, like Jesus told us to pray. An unrighteous person desires that God's will reconcile to their own. And every so often it strikes 12 and the clock is correct, see? Up here on the board, nowhere has this been more exemplified and amplified than our ongoing discussions regarding the gospel proper. This is where it gets very dangerous. Because if we try to say that God has to orient to man's will regarding salvation, that person has a major problem. It's one thing to be already saved, understand, blah, 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 you know, and you're getting kind of finicky and feisty or however you'd like to look at it, and you're dragging your feet, and God's like, God the Holy Spirit's convicting you, hey, listen, man, you're out of whack, you know, this kind of a thing. It's a whole nother concept when we're talking about salvation. Um, that's a big problem. The intersection of what the Spirit said this morning and our studies as of late, and these are issues of life and death, my friends. If God makes us alive in Christ, in other words, if He truly saves us, we can never die again, can we? Scripture says, Romans 6, 2, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Therefore, a gospel that subtracts from God's will and grace at salvation leaves room for so-called believers living in sin after this so-called salvation. In other words, there's this whole other train of counterfeit salvation. 
that subtracts from God's will and grace at salvation. Practically speaking, up here on the board, man seeks to impose his will over God's. He wants God to accommodate him and then call it grace. Oh, no, see, that's grace. Because here I was, and God made nice with me. That's grace. No, it's not. That's not grace. That's what man would like grace to be in his flesh, but that's not God's grace. God says, if I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to do it my way. If I'm going to save somebody, I'm going to choose to save them, and when I choose them, I'm going to choose to save them this way. Make no mistake about it. And I don't mess up, and I don't forget. And I don't roll over at night. Oh, my God, should I save him? Should I not save him? Oh, oh, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I should save him. Oh, I'll just tell Peter at the pearly gates. What the? Let that one in. What? These are the kind of ridiculous stories we hear from Hollywood and even some denominations, sadly. Man seeks to impose his will over God's. He wants God to accommodate him and then call it grace. But you see, that's not God's grace at all. It's a perversion. God's grace accommodates His perfect righteousness to His glory. Okay, now, that's all great. But what about works? So we've done a lot of work on grace. Part 17, right? We've barely touched works. But what about works? Why all the confusion about works, it seems? even in the so-called ranks of Christianity. When I say works, I'm talking about, you know, doing stuff. What happens? What, what does this produce in the life of a person? Are there different kinds of works? Yeah, there are. There's human works and then there's godly works. There's bad fruit and there's good fruit. Somebody's always producing something, right? It depends if the fruit's rotten or not, or if it's good fruit or bad fruit. It's that simple. A broken clock produces fruit, right? But it's bad because it's broken. That's the same thing as saying, hey, you go to a soup kitchen right now, go help some needy person out, and you say, well, Jesus said, you know, the way you did it to them, the least of them, you did it unto me. So therefore, I'm going to do this good work. Yeah, but while you're in the soup kitchen throwing American chop suey at the people. You're on Facebook taking selfies. Look at me. Look how awesome I am. I'm a stand-up Christian. You're a jackass. Yeah, and that's what God thinks of you. That's a broken clock. So what about works? Well, you see it's about perspective, motivation, godliness. That's what about works. Humility. And this is what we've been learning. You have to accept God's grace, all of it, especially at salvation. So you ask yourself, why do, why do some people add human works to the gospel and others subtract God's work from it? it? Seems strange. But it's not strange at all when you understand what I've taught you so far this morning, up here on the board, on grace and works. Man is born egocentric. So much so that he supposes his own definition of salvation is the one that needs satisfying. The only way to construct such a salvation is to suppose also his own definition for grace. 
accommodating grace, accommodating salvation. As grace goes, so goes the definition for what grace produces, namely works. The whole system is a perversion. That's what the Spirit's been teaching us. This whole system, again, let me put it this way. Man is born egocentric, so much so that he supposes his own definition of salvation is the one that needs satisfying. That was the rich young ruler, you remember? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, get rid of the self-life and you can follow me. Nope. What was his problem? He wanted his own definition of salvation, what it meant to be saved, to be in play. And Jesus said, I'm not having it. It's that simple. But that's what egocentric man does. It's all about me. I've been living for me. I've been doing all this stuff for me. So then save me on my own terms. And God says, I don't do that. I don't save human beings on your terms. I save them on my terms. And these are my terms. And then if I choose you, this is what I'm going to do. And you can't say anything about that either. <laughs> but it's a chicken and egg thing, right? The, you know, the person who's totally humbly humble doesn't want to change any part of salvation anyways. So the person who's saved, you get it? It's like, you know what I mean? The same person. The only way to construct such a salvation that is perverted like that is to suppose it's his own definition of grace. As grace goes, so, the, so goes the definition of what grace produces, namely works. The whole system is a perversion. Now, this is why we have been considering the following baseline principle as our, let's call it our entry point for the works side of grace and works. So we've spent 17 lessons almost on grace. Get that right, what the Spirit is saying. Get that right, and works is a layup. It's impossible to understand works in the Bible if your concept of grace is limited. A limited viewpoint means a limited perspective, which can only lead to confusion. This confusion is not from God, 1 Corinthians 14.33, nor is any pain involved in extracting it the surgeon's fault. That's me. That's my good work. Trying to get you away from the temptation of accommodating man, if that makes sense. Because that's our nature. We want to accommodate not just ourselves, but man. That's what the flesh does. Go to James 2.17. We'll give this one last read. Speaking of works, James is pretty straightforward on this topic. Hence, we've been revisiting it for some time now. James 2.17 Remember, you receive faith by grace, so think of it that way when we read the faith that James is speaking of. James 2.17, even so, faith, if it has no works, in other words, if it does nothing, if it has no fruit, is necros. Greek word means dead. Dead things don't do things. At least not on God's plane, so to speak, at least not in the spiritual sense. So even so, faith, it has no works. If it has no works, it's dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. 
But you are, willing, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? It's dead. That's what dead things are. They're useless. Dead things don't do anything. Right? That kind of personifies what useless is. I'm not going to ask, you know, Uncle Jimmy at his funeral to sing me a lullaby. This is not going to happen. Because dead people don't sing. You get it? That's Necros. So, I mean, it's obvious what James is saying, but yet, surprisingly, if you were to Google people's concept of James 2, it's all over the map. People are fighting, warring, confused. They don't know what they're talking about. It's so simple. The people that are confused are the people that have mucked around with grace. The people that are confused are often the same people that have either added or subtracted to salvation itself, and they're clinging to some perverted gospel. That's why they're confused. Simply stated, in keeping with James' sentiments up here on the board, any confusion about works is preceded by confusion about grace. Here's where we ended on Thursday, up here on the board. Anytime God's grace is reduced in scope and effect, it actually perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ, manufacturing a different little g gospel. This false gospel may proclaim grace because it is more accommodating but it's a deceptive trap. Somehow grace has taken on this perversion that it means to accommodate man. Because isn't that what, isn't that what we teach our kids nowadays, and like especially our own country, that you know we show our love by accommodating them? Isn't that why our country is in such a dire straits, is that our kids are completely a mess? Why? Because they've had parents that told them true love is when the parents, the sovereign in the household, accommodate the children. Because God forbid you discipline them. Oh my God. Little Johnny, you sit right there. The kid's like four. You sit. What do you think about this? What? What? Where's the discipline? It's gone. Why? Why do you think that is? A father who loves his child, what? Disciplines him. Okay, if there's no discipline, what happened? We just accommodated a little kid. You know the little egocentric one, the one that was born egocentric? We just accommodated that little kid. Think about that. Anytime God's grace is reduced in scope and effect, it actually perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ, manufacturing a different gospel. This false gospel may proclaim grace because it is more accommodating. But that's a deceptive trap. Let me give you this to think about, to drive this point home. Have you ever noticed that the so-called, quote, Christians in this world that are confused about works are the same ones, if you dig deep enough into their doctrinal statements, that are confused about grace? You ever notice that? The ones who are confused about works, people that add to salvation or even subtract some of God's good works, from salvation. They're the same ones who are confused about grace. They think that grace is accommodating to man. They think that God, we should be able to do what that little kid did to that parent, to the parents in that scene I just described. That we as the children should be able to demand that God must come meet us because grace must accommodate us because that's what true love is. We bend to our children. Show me that in the Bible. 
It's not there. Sovereign authority is not meant to bend. It's there to establish, to institute, so that God's grace can flow the way it's supposed to flow. But if that thing gets perverted, and all of a sudden the sovereign becomes a subordinate, which is the case in many households, the kids rule the roost. It's grotesque. If that happens, all bets are off. Now grace doesn't flow at all. All you're left with is some definition of grace that accommodates the child. Isn't that what we're trying to say to God? God, you accommodate us. On further inspection of individuals like these on the board, these so-called Christian churches and such, you'll discover that these folks have the gospel messed up too. As a, result of, of, as a result of perverting God's grace. Here's where we ended last Sunday. We're coming full circle. If your version of grace doesn't include all facets of God's plan for salvation, then your gospel is surely suspect. By grace, God reveals fallen man's darkness and sin to the unbeliever, for that man cannot see out of darkness. Only the light from God can illumine and quicken man's perspective by grace. This is the beginning of God's plan for salvation. And let me just inject this as well. Satan hates grace because it leaves no room for arrogance. Hates it. Is antagonistic to it does not want you to cling to it, does not want you to understand it, wants to tempt you away from it, including the gospel, especially the gospel. Go out there and preach a different gospel. Go teach some accommodating grace gospel. Go tell people that God's willing to get on his knees and beg for you to be saved by him. That's what Satan wants. He doesn't want the sovereignty of God. He's the same one who said, I will, I will, I will be like the Most High. Those were his, that was his initiative when he sinned, when he fell, the anointed cherub. That's what he wanted. So what the Spirit of Grace has been teaching us is that Satan is really intelligent in his methods to pervert grace. Up here on the board, I call it misdirection. You can call it anything you want, but this is what it seems to me. He's really good, like a serpent, and I always go back to the garden. I always go back to the garden. Did he really say? Did he say? That's called misdirection. Satan has done a masterful job of sowing misdirection, even from pulpits, resulting in folks asking the wrong questions. Hey, yeah, did he really say? I guess I'll pluck it and eat it. You know that's unholy fruit in your life, right? And all of you should relate to this. You know that's unholy fruit. Well, you know, maybe it's not. Maybe I, maybe I just asked this question. I don't know where it came from. Duh. Fiery darts. I don't know where it came from, but I just asked this question. It leaves room for, you know. Next thing you know, hey, you want some? Ship of fools, right? The question we ought to be asking folks, now back to gospel proper, because this is the most dangerous place of all. What do you believe? Not do you believe. Because if you ask, let's face it, 
especially in this area. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? I do. And that's the end of the conversation. Good for you. Let's watch the Patriots. All right. How about what do you believe? What do you mean, what do I believe? Exactly. What do you believe? I mean, didn't we just read in James 2? You believe God is one and the demons know this and shudder? Knowledge is not the issue. What is it? You, you, you can know about Jesus Christ. You know, you went to a cross. You can understand those kinds of things. But what is it that you believe? What do you think he saved you from? Hell. Wrong. That's a destination. What did he save you from? What was the problem? How were you born? Are you depraved? What do you believe? Not do you believe. The focus of contemporary Christianity is wrong. It is like the rich man who asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He just wanted the goodie bag. He, wanted the, he didn't want the gospel. He wanted the goodie bag. What do I need to get that? Because I hear about this hell thing. I don't want that. So how do I get to heaven? I just want that. He didn't want the gospel. It may sound odd that many today don't actually want all of God's grace. They want something less even. They want to subtract from grace, from salvation. But here's the thing. And this is why this morning's message was framed the way it's been framed. You have to take the time and put in the effort. I know this is a lot. Some of you are like, you know, some of you are like this. <sighs> It's 11.08, okay? I've been talking for an hour. I'm only halfway there. They're like, oh, my God, the Patriots are on. I'll never come here again. Good. 11.09, sorry. Just saying. Here's the thing. You have to take the time and put in the effort to change lenses from man's to God's to see this clearly. That's what he's been trying to say. Stop being so egocentric. Stop putting God in a treadmill. And stop for a moment being so self-absorbed. And try for a moment to see through his lens. What does he think about salvation? What's he trying to do? What does he see the problem is? Not your little ridiculous definitions that accommodate you and your family and your friends. That's garbage. Once again, this brings up one of the greatest attacks on the gospel, the misdirection that Satan has sown in the contemporary so-called Christian churches up here on the board. Many Christians believe that salvation by grace means a free ride out of heaven into hell. That is their gospel. Does that happen? Yep. When you're saved, absolutely. But that's their whole gospel. That's, you know, Jesus was just interested in destinations. There was no sovereignty. There was no dominion. There was no fundamental sin issue. You weren't dead. You don't have to be made alive. You just get a trip, you see. If it's just a trip, then really he hasn't changed me, have it? So that means I can be on my way to heaven and still be the same me. Ooh, I like this gospel. That's what the rich man wanted, right? I want the trip, but I want to stay the same guy. And God says, you can't get, on the, you can't get in the boat. You can't really get in the boat. Unless I change you, because this is all saved. These are actually changed people. 
Many Christians believe, though, that salvation by grace is this one little meal ticket. Jesus taught as his disciples that his gospel was salvation from sin. The prior is an incomplete, emasculated version of grace, certainly not the grace that Jesus embodies, John 1.14. So then pondering that a little further, you might ask, how does Satan pull this off? How does he deceive the minds of the masses? Easy. He deceives the masses the way he deceived Eve, from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Christ is a person. 2 Corinthians 11.3 Christ had a lot to say. Just read the Gospels. You know all those red letters? That was Christ. So if it's simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, maybe you should listen to what he said about his own Gospel. He said, if you don't do this, if you don't, you don't even count the cost, you can't follow me. You've got to let go of that self-life. You've got to be willing, willingly available, to put it that way, more accurately. Satan leads astray, that's that Greek word, pathero, corrupts the person of Jesus, leading to another Jesus, 2 Corinthians 11.4. He undermines Jesus by spoiling grace. Here's what the author and perfecter of our faith, the very embodiment of grace and truth, had to say about his own gospel. Jesus' own gracious words. Jesus was perfectly gracious when he said, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 4.19 Likewise, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Wait a minute, I thought I just got a free ticket. I thought I was just going to jump in the boat or on the bus. Now, Jesus told us what his gospel looked like. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I didn't say that. That's Mark 8, 34. Jesus is quoted as saying that. Both statements are equally gracious. Jesus could never say anything inconsistent with his own nature. Now, I need, to cling, I need you to cling to this with every fiber of your being right now. Jesus could never say anything inconsistent with his own nature. Let me say it again. Jesus could never say anything inconsistent with his own nature. He said that which is on the board and much, much more on the same topic. Amen? Jesus could never say anything inconsistent with his own nature. Okay. Up here on the board. Speaking about natures, because we share in one, we partake in one, by the way. By grace of salvation, you have been given a new nature. Jesus could never say anything inconsistent with his own nature. Some of you might read forward in the lesson. We know this thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It means you are placed into union with Jesus Christ which means you're a partaker of a divine nature if you're truly saved. Huh. So it's not just a free ticket. No. You actually have a new nature if you're saved. But I don't know if I like that because I wanted to, stay, I wanted to keep my old nature and get on the bus and make it to heaven. I like that gospel better. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, that's not the gospel. That's a little g gospel. That's an accommodating gospel. Hmm. By grace of salvation, you have been given a new nature. Like Jesus' perfect nature, your new nature cannot say or do anything inconsistent with grace. That's it. 
Your old nature is just the opposite. Hence, Paul's own admission of his struggle between the two in Romans 7. You need to cling to this. You have been given a new nature if you're truly saved. Now, there's a lot of implications there. And it's not just a trip from hell to heaven. You're literally a new creature, a new nature that stays with you forever and ever and ever and ever. It's perfect. It's made righteous. You hear all these things. I no longer see these things in you. You're made perfectly righteous in my son, Christ Jesus. Who do you think he's talking about? The flesh? Who do you think the Bible's talking about? It's talking about the new nature. It's perfected. The point is simple. You either accept that God changes the believer, making them a new creature, or you don't. And don't mince words. And don't play games. And they'll say, well, you know, he, he, he changed them. He, he made them able. Now, no, no. He changed them. Stop playing your little theological games. But it, he did change them. He gave them a ticket to heaven. That changed them. Oh, I see how this is going. Oh, attorney. You either accept that God changes the believer, making them a new creature, or you don't. Huh. Well, something that's made alive previously couldn't do anything. <gasps> but now you're alive, and alive creatures walk around. <gasps> and they do stuff. And since it's a brand new creature who's wholly righteous, guess what they do? They produce good fruit. That's all they can produce. So said Jesus Christ. A tree can only bear fruit after its own kind. So if you're a new creature, guess what you do? You walk around and you produce, guess what? Only good fruit. Either you accept what plainly stated Scripture states or you reject it. Go to 2 Corinthians 5.17. I can't believe it. we finally made it to the new creature. It's been in my notes for like, I, I, I said like a couple of weeks last time. No, it's been there for like six weeks, I think. Obviously, you all needed a, uh, a lot of um, insight into the grace of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Now we've turned our attention to works. What about works? Well... What do you think about works? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, you can answer this for yourself, can't you? Something's dead and now it's alive. In Christ. He is a new creature. Well, what do you think about works? What do you think the new creature is endeavored to do forevermore? Produce good works. I mean, that's, it was, we were predestined, right? For this purpose, says Scripture. We were predestined. We are His workmanship. Sound familiar? This is all scripture we've been learning about grace. We are His workmanship, made to walk for His good purpose in Christ Jesus. That's scripture. And that's consistent with 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says plainly, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? What? No, it's not reformed. It's not a reformed creature. It's, uh, oh, wait a minute, where is she? Oh, baby! Oh, it's not this? We don't get to dress up the pig? Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, sweetie. Back you go. Right? No, this is a brand new creature. A pig will always go back to what? The mire. You see? 
That's why that theology says a person can be quote-unquote saved, but go live forever and ever in sin. Why don't they just say it? Why don't they just come out and say it? That God's a liar and they're not new creatures. They get a free ticket, but they get to spend the rest of their existence, so-called saved, in the mire. Because that's exactly what a pig likes. You can dress it up all day long, but it's going back to the mire. Why don't they just say it and be done with it? Because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, and so do all his agents. Oh, but that hurts, and that affects my family and my friends. You bet. Do you think God cares? Do you think God's going to bend all of a sudden? Because your existence... Your life is somehow so novel that Solomon was lying? That the immutable God of the universe is going to change? Because you feel so much for this person or that person? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Up here on the board. The new creature. You ready? A true believer... A person who has been saved by grace through faith has been made new. Not dressing up the piggy, not reformed, not I'll get around to it when I'm ready, just give me the ticket now, we'll deal with it later. None of that. That's garbage. Has been made new. This new nature is a partaker of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. This is a grace gift given at salvation or not at all. It is not something a person chooses after being saved. For that supposition implies a person has not been truly saved from sin. I think I'll leave you there. If you are saved, theology proper, the Bible says unequivocally, you've been made a new creature. And that creature is perfect. It's never changed. Do you understand? It's the flesh that goes to the grave. The flesh is the one that's transformed. The flesh is the one that becomes a resurrected body. But the new creature, never again to be changed. Why? Because it's been made perfectly righteous. To say it's not is to say that when we were slammed into union with Jesus Christ, somehow we marred him. That somehow our nature, even though it's, what, new, I guess, quote unquote, was somehow less than his, less righteous? No. No, my friends, that's not how it works. God himself imputed perfect righteousness to us at salvation. We are partakers of the divine nature. It goes beyond just the gavel. Do you understand? We are changed. And we don't get to subtract from that because that's what the grace of God does for believers at salvation if they are truly saved. And that is the distinction that the Spirit's been making. I'm out of time, but... That is essentially what we've been getting at for a very long time. And once you understand that, and once you embrace the fact that you truly are saved, it's not an afterthought, it's not a trip to heaven and we'll talk about it later, that the only thing that creature can do is produce what? Good or bad fruit? That's it. Why is that so hard? Ah, it's only hard because people don't want that. People are like the 
rich young ruler, especially the United States, especially the United States, a bunch of rich, by world standards, a bunch of rich people, even the poorest person in this room is going to be richer than those people that Joey and I see in India, most likely, at least many of them. And Jesus said it's, hot, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What does that say? It says our, our entire lens as Americans is perverted. And you know what a perverted lens does? It perverts the gospel. It says, well, nobody's coming to Jesus. So let's move God to them. Let's do that. Since they don't want the truth, like the rich young ruler, because that's most Americans, let's move God to them. Let's accommodate man. Let's peddle a gospel that does that thing so we can fill the seats and say, look at my church. Ha, 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 ha. I have 6,000 people. So? Look at my church. <laughs> you understand? I'd rather have three people that are honest about Jesus Christ than 3,000 that just want to trip to heaven. Honestly, what are we after, folks? Who are we representing? Are we representing man or Christ? Anyways, I could go on and on forever, but some of you are probably, given the size of your jugs, are whittling your knees and saying, oh, God, I'm going to be the first to the bathroom. I'm going to rip up the rug. I get some weird looks. People are like, we have to partake in the Lord's Supper. So why don't we get ready for that, gentlemen?
take a trip to the upper room. Luke 22:14 says, "When the hour had come, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, "I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God." And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his person. Let's eat the bread. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's drink the cup in remembrance of his work. All right, guys, can you play the video for me, please? Oh 
Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for giving us a morning like this one, while the world may just be opening its eyes to its evil ways. Once again, we have been blessed by you. We are so very grateful and humbled by your faithfulness and your loving kindness, Father. Frankly, we are overwhelmed by it, just knowing and appreciating how very far you have delivered us from the very depths of spiritual depravity to the heights of heaven. We pray, Father, that our hearts remain forever humbled, even as our fleshes antagonize us. And we pray for those still struggling in this world, especially those still completely lost. We pray also, Father, for those of the faith, that they might continue to press on with increasing tenacity in the face of increasing opposition by the world. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.